0: This was one of the only two times in history where it was completely and utterly destroyed. The year was 586 BC and Jerusalem was surrounded by the Babylonian army. And for 30 months, siege works went up while the people inside the walls wasted away from a once proud state to malnourished beggars. You see, they knew that with the city surrounded, there was no way out of their present situation. And so all they had to do was wait. The aggressors had already defeated any army that could come and help them. They would just finished defeating Egypt. And so the people of Judah knew that it was only a matter of time before they were fodder for the ancient war machine. There was a pesky prophet inside the walls of the city by the name of Jeremiah and his counterpart in the northern kingdom, Hosea, both of them kept prophesying loudly in the streets that imminent calamity was the direct result of people forsaking God and that there was still time to repent. But the people refused to listen. As the stranglehold tightened, starvation gave way to desperation, even reports of cannibalism and anarchy reigned in the streets. And you may think that when it got really, really bad and there was literally no other hope that the people might cry out to God and ask for him to save them. After all, they'd done it before and they were in tighter spots than this and God had saved them from tighter situations than this. But not this time. This time, against all prophetic invitations, the people persisted in placing all of their trust in futile alliances and idols made of wood or stone. And after 30 months of waiting for the inevitable, finally the city's wall was breached, and the Babylonian army came in through the cracks, and they broke into the temple, the most holy and sacred place, the place where the very presence of God was manifest to his people, and they set it on fire and burned it to the ground. Then they went to the palace and systematically, room by room, storehouse by storehouse, closet by closet, killed everyone that they could find. And Judah's puppet king and his army decided to try and escape that night through a hole in the wall, but it was futile. The Babylonians captured him, killed him, uh, killed his sons rather before his eyes, and then they put out his eyes so that the very last thing that he remembered for the whole of the rest of his natural life was the consequences of his own rebellious leadership. The Babylonian army stayed on site in the city for months and months and months, systematically dismantling the city stone by stone until the whole area was nothing but a pile of rocks. It was meant as a lesson for the entire world of what would be done to anybody who dared to defy the double-cross Babylon. And the citizens of Jerusalem and Judah who were not killed outright were placed in chains and sent off on a five-month, 700-mile journey across the burning sands of the ancient Near East. And as they walked out of the city, I can't help but wondering if there was a question burning in the hearts and minds of every man, woman, and child in that lineup, in that throng. A question of why. Why, God? Why would you let this happen to us? Why would you let your own temple be destroyed? Why would you leave us to suffer like this? Why would you let the people that you love experience this? Well, last week we wrapped up a teaching series in the Old Testament book of Hosea, and we spent the months of January and February exploring the images and the depths of love and anguish that God expresses in that book. Now Hosea, if you remember, is written more from God's point of view, how God is seeing and thinking about the people's actions in this time in history. And it's designed to help us learn about how God thinks about us and the relationship that we have with him. But if the book of Hosea is written to reflect how God thinks about things and his perspective, the book of Lamentations is written to express the human perspective of this experience, how we feel about parallel Events. The events that took place just a few miles to the south of Hosea in the city of Jerusalem. And I can't help but think, as I look at this artistic impression of the people being deported from their homes, or as you and I watch on the news on a nightly basis and see familiar stories played out across the world today in places like Ukraine or Syria or southern Sudan or Afghanistan, or Iraq, or Turkey, or any of these places. It's a very natural question that bubbles up to our minds when we think about these things, almost unconsciously. We ask the question, why? Why, God? Why do these things happen? When things happen in our world, fair or unfair, be it war, natural catastrophes, typhoons, famine, violence perpetuated against vulnerable people, most of us ask a very normal, very honest, very raw question. Why? Why did this happen? Why did it happen to them? Why did it happen now? Why did it happen here? And most often we direct our questions at God. Why God? And the writer of the Old Testament book of Lamentations wrestled with this and other really good questions and you can see the questions that come up in the book of lamentations that we're going to be addressing uh, as we head through this series and move into easter and through the period of lent because the writer understood these questions the writer lived through this firsthand this experience of horror and this experience of of being displaced and this all of the experiences of those 30 months not knowing if today was his last day on earth or whether he would die at the hands of his enemies, or even in the case of Jeremiah, his own friends and family. So the author of Lamentations penned a gem of a book tucked away in a dusty part of the Old Testament. But in the dusty parts of the Old Testament is where I think the Bible gets the most refreshingly honest and unvarnished because those why questions just pop out of the text and come to the surface. And in the book of Lamentations, they're actually asked very poetically or artistically. The book is actually a series of acrostic poems and reflecting on that horrible, horrible event. So listen to how the book opens in Lamentations chapter one. I'm going to start reading in verse eight. Jerusalem has sinned greatly, so she's been tossed away like a filthy rag. All who once honored her now despise her, for they have seen her stripped naked and humiliated All she can do is groan and hide her face. She defiled herself with immorality. She gave no thought to her future. So now she lies in the gutter with no one to lift her out. Lord, see my misery, she cries. The enemy has triumphed. The enemy plundered her completely, taking every precious thing she owns she's seen foreigners violate her sacred temple the place the lord forbade them to enter verse 11 says she groaned. Hear her people groan as they search for bread they've sold their treasures for food to stay alive lord look she mourns see how i'm despised does it mean nothing to you the author is crying out to god lamenting hence the title of the book asking probing question after probing question. In chapter 1, verse 9, Lord, don't you see what's going on? Again, in chapter 1, verse 11, Lord, look, look at how despised, how low this is, how bad it's gotten. In chapter 1, verse 20, Lord, see my anguish. My heart is broken. My soul despairs. I've rebelled against you. And in the streets, the sword kills at home. There's only death. My heart is broken and my soul despairs, the author says. My groans are many. I am sick at heart. See, the Bible's actually filled with questions like this. The Bible's filled with cries of anguish. People wrestling with the real circumstances of their life and saying, God, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me now? And the thing that I appreciate is that God doesn't denounce the questions or deprecate the inquiry of the inquirer. Not only can God handle it, sometimes God actually seems to actively invite this type of why questions. Because, you see, when things happen, either in the world or to us, a very natural visceral level of response kicks in. We want to know why. We want to try and wrestle with and understand that. As human beings, we want to make sense of our world. It's a very natural thing. And we search for meaning in events and circumstances. And so when bad things happen to us, it's very natural to take the question into the realm of both the philosophical and also the personal Sometimes we stop asking, why did it happen to people out there? We'll be dealing with that aspect of the topic in three weeks. Sometimes we don't even wrestle with it. Well, why did that happen to people in other places and other times, Jerusalem way back then? But sometimes when hardships and suffering comes into our lives, we ask, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me now? We try and make sense of it. So let's go back and think about the context of the book of Lamentations for a minute. When I think about those displaced people marching out of their homes, as a father, I think about the kids, the smaller ones in particular. So look again at that picture and blown it up a little bit here for you so you can uh, see a few of the things. Down in the front, that little redhead pulling on daddy's arm. I picture that kid asking, Daddy, why did we have to leave our home? Why do we have to, where are we going? When are we coming back? What's going on, Dad? And then over on the far left, you can see that little child almost trying to comfort his mother in that green dress. And when you have to kind of look a child in the eyes and try and explain to them why... It's not super helpful to wax philosophical with them. It's visceral. It's personal. It's emotional. And so we want to deal with and address those questions at that level as well. You see, most of us can conceptualize a world where justice is meted out to people who do wrong, where people who break the law are punished. We like that world. We can come to terms with people who sin against God, bearing consequences for that. But something shifts inside of us when we think about what we would picture as innocent people suffering. So, the question that we want to wrestle with today, as it's often framed in our world today, is why do bad things happen to good people? Those little kids fleeing Jerusalem, why did this bad thing happen? this terrible event, fall down on their heads. You see, we can deal with suffering at a philosophical level or a theological level and say, well, you know, the adults were involved in all of these types of things and they sinned, so this is God's punishment on them. But you gotta get it down to the visceral, kind of emotional response to suffering that you have to wrestle with. Why did the kids, what did the children do to deserve Things happen to people, and they don't happen by virtue of their actions that deserve them, according to our usual standards of measurement. So we're going to probe into that in a few different ways today, but one of them is through stories. So I want you to meet and hear the story of a few people here today. And I think that'll help us wrestle with the questions of why. So I'm going to ask Peter Ash to come up. Many of you will know Peter and his wife, Debbie, and their son, Brady. They were part of Jericho Ridge. Peter is the uh, founder and CEO, we can use this mic over here, of uh, Charity Under the Same Sun that works with uh, people with albinism uh, all around the world, particularly in Africa. And we'll get there in a minute. But Peter, I want to start maybe more personally with you a little bit before... Uh, We go there because you're a person born with albinism, a rare genetic condition that doesn't have a cure, isn't linked to anything you did, happened before you were born. So I want to ask you then, what questions, why questions did that create in your life, in your journey, in your experience? Talk to us a little bit about your journey. How do you wrestle with the question, why would God give a person a genetic condition like albinism?
1: Well, the answer to, am um, not sure if this is on. The answer to the question, why, is I don't know. Um, I don't have an answer to why. Okay. And uh, it's
0: on, but just pick it up, sorry, okay. so we can hear you.
1: Thank you. There we go. The answer to your question is I don't know why. Um, and I don't have. I can give you some theological answers. I have an undergrad in theology and a master's from a seminary, so I could give you theological answers, but I'm not going to do that. They would all be correct. And I'd have a (laughs) hundred theologians that would agree with me, and I could even cite Bible verses, but I'm not going to do that. Because I'm going to speak to you as a human being now, not as a theologian or a guy who's ordained and preached for ten years. Um, All I can tell you is if I go back in my life as a child, from my earliest memories, I knew that I was different. And I knew that I was odd. And I knew that people stared at me and touched my hair And called me names and isolated me, and I never fit in. That I do know. And I had one brother who had dark hair. I had two parents that had dark hair. They had perfect vision, no one stared at them. I had another brother who looked like me, who people did look at. And I didn't know why God chose to do this in my life. And I remember one incident when I was, tons of incidents, but one I'll just briefly share to illustrate my experience. When I was in grade six, five or six, I was uh, visually impaired, legally blind. I can't drive, I have 80% vision the most of, less, less vision than most of you. And I remember being forced to play baseball by my uh, phys ed teacher. And I told her I can't. And she said, no, you'll try, you're having a bad attitude. You'll, you'll participate like the other students. And I said, it's not a matter of attitude. Now remember this grade five boy arguing with his teacher. And she says, no, no, you'll play. It's sunny out. I have photophobia. I can't see in bright sunlight. She forces me to play. But what's worse, the two team captains are appointed and they're forced to select their team members, alternating aloud who they'll select. Guess who was picked last out of 30 kids? Not only was I picked last, but the commentary yelled aloud by my team captain was, oh, my goodness, we're stuck with Peter. So that's the entry way to be getting on the field. Those feelings... The bright sunshine's coming at me. Can't see a thing. I'm up to bat. Can't even tell if or when or where the ball is. It hits me, breaks my glasses, which are worth hundreds of dollars. My parents didn't have much money. We couldn't afford them. I'm embarrassed. They laugh. I go off the field. I go home. Isolated, alone, rejected by everybody who I cared about in my peer group. And told my mother, Mom, I'm a freak. Why did God do this to me? I'm a, I'm a freak, a freak of nature. And I recited to her all the names that I had been called since I, my earliest memory. And she held me, and she looked at me, and she said, God didn't, she said, Peter, how many kids in your school look like you? And I said, none. That's the problem. There's a few hundred kids in my school. No one has the same hair color as me. No one has the same pigmentation issue and lack of vision as me. I'm the only one. And in every school I ever went to, I was the only one. And she looked at me. She said, Peter, you're not a weirdo. You're not a freak. You're special. You're unique. God made you that way. And I had two responses when she said that. I hated what she said, and yet part of me accepted it. At that point, I sort of didn't like it because she felt like she was reinforcing what I already felt. (laughs) But part of me felt like it was okay to be different, and it was something wasn't all bad. Years later, that truth would work its way more deeply into my heart and changed my life, and helped me to understand what she said was true. And I could tell you many stories, but I won't. But throughout my course of my childhood, we had many hardships in our family. My mom was mentally ill. She attempted to take her life several times. Sometimes I witnessed her do so. And one tragedy after another befell my family. And I always knew that there was tragedy and brokenness in this world. I was never unclear about that. There was no Leave it to Beaver. There was no happy, happy uh, TV show. Uh, life. It was one disappointing tragedy after another, mixed in with some very good moments. But I always knew bad things happened, and I never fully understood why. But as my life moved forward, I began to understand that in the middle of those things, somehow, God had a purpose. Some way, he was going to use that uh, sense of not understanding why it all happened, maybe to cause me to advocate for people in a similar predicament
2: Mm
0: -hmm. and you talk a little bit about um, your challenges growing up but you also work internationally and um, particularly in Africa but talk to us about the why questions that um, as you meet and interact with kids who are fearful for their lives uh, in ways that we don't even know and understand fully here in Canada the why questions that they ask why God would Mm -hmm. do this
1: Well, you know, um, all through my life, I went through the why questions. Why am I different? Why do I look this way? Why am I odd, as I mentioned? And I remember in high school, my school in Montreal had 2,700 students. And there was about a dozen ethnic groups represented there, but only one person with albinism, and that was me. So I always felt outside of even the smallest ethnic group. And then I remember in 2008 hearing about the killing of people with albinism in Tanzania. And I'd never been to Africa in my life before, didn't even know where Tanzania was. And uh, decided that after hearing this, I needed to go. And God really put it on my heart. And it captured me in ways that I still can't fully explain. And I felt like I didn't have a choice. It's almost like God spoke to me and said, Peter, you have to go. And I haven't had that experience that clearly very many times in my life. And he spoke to me in in my own heart. And I felt like I had to go. And so I got a plane ticket and went to Tanzania. And I saw thousands and thousands, literally, of people like me across the country suffering. um, Because there had been a spate of killings. Across the country, the northwest part of the country, uh, where people were being murdered for their body parts because witchcraft taught them that the body parts of a person with albinism had magical power. And the reason they believed that was the stigma and isolation and rejection they had faced because they were considered odd or different or freakish or outside the norm, just like I had. So, although my body was never in danger of being killed, my spirit had been crushed by some of the same isolation. So, that part of it I could connect with. And so I thought, these are my people. I'm not African, I didn't know the language, but I had a connection. And as I went through the country in 2009 on my very first trip, I remember meeting a couple of families who had had their children murdered in front of their eyes. And Miriam was the first little girl who was mm-hmm. killed. And I met with her brother, Minyasi, and her, uh, her mom. And uh, the, the murder had happened a couple of weeks before I arrived. And I went into Miriam's bedroom and saw the bloodstain on the floor by her bed where she was murdered. And I heard all the story details, which I won't tell you now. But it was c- horrific. It was the most horrific kind of murder you could imagine. This was not somebody who was quickly killed. Yeah. And I could see in the mother's eyes a hollowness and a trauma as she struggled with understanding the why was my child murdered. We could explain it because stigma existed and witchcraft taught it was a good thing. We have answers. You know, we can give why she was killed. I mean, if a reporter says why, I could tell you. But that doesn't, that's not the real why. The real why in that mother's heart was why. Did my baby girl become killed in front of me, in front of her siblings? And I didn't have an answer for her except to put my arm around her and to look at her and to say, you're not alone, and your story and her story will not go unheard, and it will will reach the world, and it will reach the ears of people in power who will bring to justice the people who perpetrated this crime. We can't undo the past, but we can act for the future, and I promised her in that day in 2009, that her story would not be in vain. And to that end, God has called us and called me and the organization I work with to make sure that those stories don't repeat themselves. And if they do, that justice, to the extent that's possible, would prevail. And to that end, we've worked tirelessly at the United Nations, even this past week I just came back, to make sure that the United Nations and uh, the African Union are aware of these things, And that the plight of people like Miriam and thousands of others around the world like her who are marginalized, stigmatized, discriminated against, and attacked because of how they look is not overshadowed. So I can't answer all the why questions. Why did God let this happen? You have to ask him. (laughs) Um, But what I can say is that he is in the business of championing uh, people who are downtrodden and who are broken and who don't have a voice. And he calls each of us to be a voice for those who don't have a voice. And one day... All roads will be made straight, and one day there will be no more tears. It won't be in this life, because Ecclesiastes tells me that in this life there are some things that are crooked that will never be made straight. But the Bible tells me there will be a day when there will be no more tears. And until that day, all I can do is bring meaning to the question of why Mm -hmm. by giving my life to understand and soothe the suffering of those in that same predicament that for whatever series of reasons God has allowed me to face in my childhood
0: yeah so we want to pray for you in that because that is a a task that uh, we want to stand with you in as a community and I know this week there's ongoing presentations to the United Nations in Geneva on Tuesday in particular, and so, as God brings that to your mind, i 'm going to ask Curtis if you 'd uh, stand and if you can pray, Curtis is our on our elders team and uh, is our uh, missions committee leader and so Curtis, can you pray for Peter and for the work? Uh, that continues even
3: right now, Father. Heavenly Father. We thank you for uniquely gifting Peter in in a way that's so difficult for under for us to understand, with all the the pain and that went along with it, Lord. But we know that you work for the justice for the for the oppressed. And your word tells us that you, you love and care about us. And, and even in that, there's a lot of pain. But Heavenly Father, I pray that you will continue to give Peter the resources, the wisdom, um, not just to him, but to his team as well. Um, the team members that will be at this uh, special panel in Geneva. And it's just amazing that um, they are able to go as messengers. Uh, at, at this very high level of of world government and, and bring this plight, to bring this uh, to the world's eye. And uh, I, I pray that you will expand that, um, that care and, and that need for justice in the hearts of the panel members, uh, the people that are appointed to look at this throughout the, the coming year, that they will accept um, Peter's input under the same son's input, Lord, and uh, that you will continue to guide and guide that uh that panel lord so that justice is done Mm -hmm. even in our lifetime we thank you that you love us you love peter you love his family lord and i pray for Mm -hmm. protection over them because we know this is not just uh something that's going on in in the physical world but we know that there's a spiritual battle here as well lord and those that seek to to not have this come to light Mm -hmm. we pray too for the governments the western governments that they will Mm -hmm. release funds to support um, ongoing work and that the African governments too will will open up and they will know that um, this has to be done and uh, that they will accept accept assistance in this matter. Thank you that you are all-knowing and all-powerful, Lord, and we just give this over to you even though we don't understand it all. Thank you. Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. Men, Let's thank Peter for sharing his story with mm-hmm. us. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. You know, one of the, the things that we want to do uh, in this series together is help you hear the journeys of those sitting uh, around you, to listen to the things that they've wrestled with and they continue to wrestle with so that you can stand uh, in partnership with them as they continue to wrestle with that. And Peter's story, as well as uh, the biblical record, give us some framework to actually press into this question, some groundwork that actually has to be laid before we get into the conversations about why and why God, specifically the conversation of why do bad things happen to good people. And one of the significant parts uh, that the Christian story helps us understand is uh, that back at the very beginning of the record in Genesis that humankind rebelled against God and things went, as Pastor Keith is prone to say, cattywankus. And I'm sure that's a theological word that has all kinds of, you know, agreed upon meanings. But we know this intuitively and Peter brought this up in, in his story as well. And countless other people in the globe and in your own life will bear the witness out that the world is broken. The... The original design of the world is not as God intended it to be. And this brokenness comes to us, and it comes to all of us. It's inherited by the entire human race. Matthew 5 to 45 talks about the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Good things happen, bad things happen, things happen. And so the world we experience, the brokenness, the suffering that we see in our lives on the news... It's not the part of God's original design, and one day, as Peter focused our eyes and attention on it, will be made. All things will be made new. The other understanding that helps to open up for us in respect to Peter's story and others is that it is important to de-link suffering with specific sinful behaviors. So sometimes we get into bad habits or sloppy habits of thinking where the individual sufferer, we feel, well, maybe they're just getting what they deserve uh, from God. The individual sufferer is not necessarily receiving a due payment for specific wrongdoing. Not everyone in that lineup leaving Jerusalem to go to Babylon that day was guilty of shaking their fist at God in insolent disobedience and idol worship. We see this in the gospel accounts too. Uh, the disciples come and ask Jesus in Luke chapter 13, uh, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was been born blind? So they don't leave another option on the table. They just say it has to be, somebody has to have done something bad. And Jesus says neither. This happened so that God's glory could be revealed. And then they'd ask him another question. Uh, there was an incident that, that a tower fell on a group of people. And the disciples came to Jesus and said, yeah, surely the people that the tower fell on, they were like the bad people in the city, right? So God like just meted out justice on them and they all died. And Jesus says, no, the tower fell. People died. Do you think they were worse sinners than anybody else in the city that day? I don't think so. And so the delinking can be an important piece of that process. The scriptures don't leave us there. The doctrine of the fall is paired with the doctrine of the incarnation and Christ coming to us and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we're reminded and we'll be reminded throughout this series that in Christ we have a God who is not just distantly uninterested, in suffering, that God actually himself suffered with us, suffered for us, and who also calls us to be motivated by his love to alleviate the sufferings of others in the world. We have, we have a, a duty that compels, Christ's love compels or constrains us to walk with those who are broken and who are suffering, to do justly, the Bible says, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. And so the Christian gospel gives us some incredible resources to not just address the philosophical aspects of the existence of evil, but the emotional aspects of it as well. The notion that God himself would suffer and allow his son to experience suffering and death. I was speaking with a Muslim friend of mine, and he said, I cannot allow that theologically. I will not see that to be true that God would allow himself to be touched or tainted in that way by something as base as suffering. But the Christian gospel reminds us that we have a God who cares so deeply about us. God's not distant or uninterested in our lives. Lamentations 3, 55 to 57 says it this way, I called on your name, Lord, from deep within the pit, and you heard me when I cried, Yes, you came when I called to me, and you told me, do not fear. And so throughout this teaching series, we're going to press into some resources that we have, some frameworks that we can have to answer some of our own uh, very potent and personal questions. So our question today that we're trying to wrestle with and understand, we also have to understand what the writer of uh, Lamentations understood And that is that when we ask a question like, why do bad things happen to good people? There's actually some assumptions behind that question. So some of the assumptions behind that question, first of all, one of the assumptions is that good people deserve good things. And much could be said about that assumption, but that needs to be challenged as an assumption about our lives, first of all. It's a little arrogant, not actually a little arrogant, it's completely arrogant to put ourselves selectively into that category and say, well, I'm a good person. Under whose measurement tools might you do that? What does that suggest? Who are we to assume that we're good people? To set ourselves up as judge and jury is highly arrogant and inappropriate. Because if we've delinked behavior in our previous example, why do we want to link it here again? Lamentations 3, 38 and 39 says, Does not the Most High send both calamity and good? Then why should we as mere humans complain? But some of us actually go through our lives, and I think it's probably a little bit more pervasive in Western culture than it is in other cultures, but we go through our lives with a spiritual sense of entitlement, that God somehow owes us something for our good behavior. Behavior. God owes you nothing. And so to assume that good people deserve good things and that you are a good person and therefore you are deserving of good things is completely inappropriate. The second assumption that's built into this question, though, is the inverse of that, and that is that bad people deserve bad things. So here again, philosophically and experientially, we need to ask ourselves again, why would this be true? We're going to deal with God's ultimate justice and how he will ultimately make things right later in this series because oftentimes, from our human perspective, and Peter talked about this and experiences in Africa and seeing this firsthand and meeting sufferers, that evil goes unpunished in our world. Lamentations chapter 1 ends with a cry to God saying, God, I pray that this would not be the case, but it goes unanswered. But for now, we need to remind ourselves that we want this to be true. We deeply want bad people to get their just desserts. But the world is too fallen and too deeply broken to divide neatly into a pattern of good people having good lives and bad people having bad lives. It's just a faulty assumption. It's not a helpful category for us all much as we sometimes want it to be true. The last assumption built into the question is that one I want to hear, uh, have you here played out in the form of another journey story. And that is the assumption built into the question that why do bad things happen to good people is that bad stuff has no purpose or good purpose, particularly not in God's economy. And so I want to invite uh, up Jody and Daryl Beckert. They're going to share some of their journey here with us. Uh, Jody's one of our elders here at Jericho, and Daryl is a visual problem solver slash photographer slash, 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 Uh, put whatever else you want after that. Uh, But a number of years ago, when we were first uh, getting to know each other, and you guys had first started attending Jericho Ridge, uh, you guys received some life-altering news. And so can you walk us through a little bit of uh, your experiences and some of your story? Uh, from that season of life, so
2: sure it was. Um, it was January of 2006, and we were eagerly expecting um, the birth of our second child. And there was a few hiccups towards the end that, you know, Jody wasn't quite measuring as well as she should, and there was more scrutiny with uh, ultrasounds and whatnot. But um, when, you know, so there was, a, there was a lot of scrutiny, a lot of extra tests and things like that. But we still had. Good feelings overall, and one evening in the hospital they 're testing heart rate, and everything had been great, everything had been great, and then his heart rate drops so um, so we welcome Sam into the world at three pounds a um, tiny little guy, and to obviously some foreshadowing here he wasn 't that visually broken um, but over the course of several days and being transferred out to children 's and and meeting with specialists and whatnot, it was the diagnosis came down like a hammer that um, he had a condition called trisomy 13, which is a rare genetic disorder that has no known cause and no treatment. Um, so quite, quite interesting. I, I borrowed your words, Peter. Uh, and it was like that night was, um, you know, like the dark night of the soul. Um, it was like standing and, and there's a tsunami coming at you and, and where can you go to, to run from it and God was incredibly gracious in that I didn't even have to cry out very long for him to show up um, and you know a lot of times people will go through something and afterwards you can process and say well, God where were you in this he made it super clear where he was um, in terms of, he was he was right beside us, and he granted us with a piece that that truly wasn't understandable. Um, so, the question that I that I had, the perspective that we had, and we've only gained as time has gone on, has been it, it wasn't why is this happening? Because we're both the type that this is happening. It happened. Um, there wasn't any denying that. It, this is happening. And it was more or less like, how is God going to use this?
0: Yeah. So walk us through um, your journey since that point a little bit. What would you say to people that say, well, bad things just they have no purpose in my life or in our lives? What, what impact or influence has your journey with Sam had on your life and is it having on your life today?
2: The interesting thing with that question between good and bad is is it's a matter of perspective. Um, losing a child is never good from the perspective of parents, siblings, family, etc. But, you know, so that I would never wish that on, on anybody. But um, in terms of what it did for us as, in our life we had a choice of using it, using it to reveal God's glory or not, right? And, it, you know, it's like a black or white thing. You'd either reject and be angry or just accept. And it's completely changed how we do things. Um, you know, I can't deny that he's, he was been, he's been there with us and through it. And it's, it's changed our perspective uh, in terms of, what it means to really hold on to something and what it means to let something go. So being able to I mean I it was made super clear um at the baby dedication for Samuel where uh Kristen Serenity made a choice of saying we're 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 giving our child to God and we were in the same boat. We you know he is yours. He isn't ours. We're the caretaker. Um so that it changed our perspective with our own, you know, with Emily and with Ben that they're not mine that I'm going to hold onto them so tightly and protect them from everything. And um, we're their caretakers. It's our responsibility to raise them and expose them to different experiences. Um, it changes our approach in terms of how we want to spend our time, how we spend our money, etc. That we're re- it's not ours; it's God's to to manage. Um, and and looking back, we've had eight years to look back and post-process it, but it was definitely a fork in the road where everything changed. Um, so yeah, Jody, maybe talk to us about those
0: why questions and um, you know issues of wrestling with that. And what did that what that look like for you?
4: I think there was a different like an aspect of. I know you talked about it with um, feeling angry at God because um, I think that's a natural response. How can you not feel? Um, some sort of anger and confusion towards something like this if this happens to you but it's been eight years so it's it's raw but it's, it's not you can only I just know that and I don't remember every thought that we had because it was eight years ago but I know deep in my soul that being angry with God just wasn't our experience um even though I think that's a very natural one. There's something so in amongst our pain, our deepest pain that I think we've both ever encountered. um, God was there and his extreme peace was there. And we knew in those moments that his little body of 3 pounds, 12 ounces had purpose. And (laughs) There just was no anger. It just was not our experience. And so looking back in our deepest pain, if I could change it, I I wouldn't because what it has done for the way we think and the way our family was shaped and those around us um, I wouldn't change a thing um, for how God really moved in our lives and our faith and and how we see life. And that is not something you we really knew then, and it's shaped every year, and it's shaping it now, what we do tomorrow. Um, so, yeah, and um, one of the verses that I... Um, it's in Isaiah, Isaiah 43.2. Um, in amongst the pain, um, it's, uh, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not s- sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Um, and that's really what we experienced. We experienced his extreme peace. Um, and we knew that we had purpose, so we just move forward. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I remember, I don't know if you guys remember a conversation that we had when you were walking through the middle of it and uh, someone was, was really pushing you around why and why is this happening to you? Why do you think this is happening to you? And I don't remember which one of the two of you said it, but you said... We don't ask why me. We ask why not me. Like a lot of stuff happens in the world. Why, why wouldn't it happen to us? And they came back to you and said, that's a little fatalistic, don't you think? And there was a real sort of, um, it seemed like in some of those situations, others around you were really wrestling in some ways more uh, viscerally and more emotionally with it than you guys. I mean, that's part wiring. It's part all kinds of of things. But one of the things that I just want to affirm and pay tribute to you guys is is through that whole journey how um, often you spoke about God's faithfulness and how you continue to live your lives in a way that just demonstrates that the things that God has entrusted to you, both of you, and to your family that will continue to be of influence to people. It
2: sounds interesting that... um I, again, this is several years of being able to process it afterwards. That um, you know, m- I'm actually proud that we were trusted to be able to do to, to go through this. That God, God trusted in our faithfulness, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and it's it's a scar that I wear proudly. And scars are interesting because you, you have different connotations. If you say that you're scarred, it could mean that you're stunted or damaged or whatnot. Um, and other times you have a scar, and it tells a story, and it, it's with you, mm-hmm. and it's part of you. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a, a different level of perspective to to see to be proud of the fact that mm-hmm. we were chosen to walk that out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's thank Daryl and Jody for sharing that part of their story with us. There's obviously uh, so much more to their story and to Peter's story than we can fit into a sunny morning. So I would encourage you to just um, approach them and talk to them about about it and what God is continuing to teach them uh, in that. And thinking through their story and through the book of uh, Lamentations, um, there's I'm struck by a few kind of personal thoughts or take-homes, uh, takeaways that... Um, Maybe you want to write down and and process a little bit. Um, And one is that the easy or the quick answers are not the satisfying ones. If someone pushes into those places with you, particularly when you're experiencing some deep waters yourself, you, you know that the easy and quick answers are not the ones that are rich and full and satisfying. Don't settle for trite answers and certainly don't go around giving them to other people, to your friend or family member. Dig a little deeper. Think carefully. Think clearly. Pray for discernment and wisdom. One of the ways uh, I'm reading through a book right now by Timothy Keller, uh, which is an excellent book. I highly recommend it uh, to you. And in his excellent book, he says it this way. uh, We don't know the reason that God allows evil and suffering to continue or why it's so random. But at least we know the reason that it's not. It cannot be because he does not love us. It cannot be because he does not love us. Which leads us to our final thought for this morning. It's a question for each of us to wrestle with. That Peter had to wrestle with, Daryl and Jody, and many of you have had to wrestle with, do I trust God? Do you know enough about God to trust him in the things that you don't know or won't fully understand Lamentations one eighteen says the Lord is right. I may not fully understand it, I may not fully know it. I don't know Lamentations three says. No one's abandoned forever. The Lord brings grief. He also shows compassion because of his great and unfailing love. <laughs> you and I may not get all the answers about suffering and evil that we feel that we need or may want. But we are you okay with living in that place of tension? Trusting the things that you do know of God's character and his goodness. So when bad things happen, they can push us away from God, or toward God. And Peter and Daryl and Jody and countless of others have chosen to put their trust and their confidence in what they do know of God's character, that he's faithful. They found him to be faithful and compassionate and full of unfailing love. And so how about you? What are you going to choose today? I'm going to pray with us and for us and the team's going to come and lead us in some worship in song and response and our, our prayer team Uh, Bailey and Katie will be available.